making a radical decision towards integrity and authenticity in who you are, whatever it costs you, in the end will be weight that is taken off of you in a personal sense towards your life in Christ. And I really believe that. The only things we ever let go of are things that were getting in the way of the first place. Well, friends, welcome back to the Space for Faith podcast, where we are reimagining the church for our current moment. We are joined today by my friend Kevin Sweeney from Hawaii. You're going to get to hear from Kevin in a minute. You just heard from him just there, that brief clip. And Kevin has got a new book coming out May 31st, which I think is the day that we are releasing this. Uh, It's called The Making of a Mystic. Check it out on Amazon. You can find Kevin on Instagram, Kevin Sweeney One. And uh, you're in for a treat of a conversation. We talk about his church. We talk about sort of some of the values behind it. We talk about some of like, what does it look like to integrate um, contemplative practices in our lives? What does it look like to work through these sort of like um, cycles where we we have these experiences with God that we want to replicate, but instead of trying to replicate these big experiences, how do we how do we integrate that as a normative sort of practice in our lives? Talk about the gathering we've got coming up in October that I would love to see you at the Post-Evangelical Collective. It's a gathering of pastors and artists and other church leaders talking about the church in this current moment, reimagining the church in our current moment. So we'd love to have you be a part of that. You can find out more information at MikeGoldsworthy.com. But for now, let's go ahead and jump into the interview here with Kevin Sweeney. Well, friends, we have my friend Kevin Sweeney with us coming to us from the great state of Hawaii, where he has uh, suffered as a missionary for the last several years in planting, helping to co-found a church and pastor a church there called Imagine Hawaii. And Kevin, uh, we got to know each other maybe, I don't know, did we first talk about a year-ish ago? My friend Jonathan, mutual friend, introduced us. It could have been i remember talking to you on my lanai which for your listeners that's like a balcony in hawaii and i do remember like where i was doing it and it, yeah it could have been april-ish yeah it might have been a year ago actually okay yeah. yeah so it's been fun getting to trek with you jonathan introduced us he was telling me he's like hey there's this church out in hawaii that's doing really interesting things in kind of the post-evangelical space and you should know them and know about what they're doing and then we found out you know we had a bunch of other mutual friends in common but for folks that don't know about Imagine Hawaii and what you like, tell a little bit of the story of how you ended up out there, about how the church got started and yeah, a bit about what you all have been doing. Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, I've, I've been telling people this and, and I really mean it, you know, as a first time, even though we've had a previous connection as a first time author to be invited into anybody's podcast to be invited into their world and their communities and the places they lead is really really meaningful and i'm really grateful Mm, for that i don't take yeah i don't take that for granted so first of all i just want to say thank you for taking the time and making this happen and yeah imagine i grew up in around los angeles and i moved to hawaii at 18 to go to college now there's a whole story of my 
awakening experience with God, why my book would have a chapter called Mushrooms and Missionaries that has led me out here so people can see, you know, learn about the details of why in the new book. It's a very, there's some details of that story. But I came here at 18 and my wife and my girlfriend at the time was now my wife was here and we did our undergrad here at University of Hawaii. I went to a community college here before I went to UH, moved back, moved back to LA, got married and then lived in Costa Mesa in Orange County for five years, actually. And we, the Hawaii thing was, we just had this growing, evolving sense of it would be weird to not go back and we want to go back and we knew Orange County was temporary and that's why for us, the language of calling and desire, you know, I think those lines are blurred for my wife and I in some ways and where for other people, they might be a little more distinct and separate because honestly, a part of it was we just want to be in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not just because, like, yes, it's Hawaii, but we love it. And that's where our relationship grew. And it really felt like home to us in some ways. And that's where we wanted to be. So did I feel a sense of calling? Shh, yes. But also, that's just where we wanted to be. And I, I think my wife and I are both always okay. Like, you can choose where you want to live in life or you can make, you know what I mean? Yeah. Talk, talk a little bit about that before we get more into the church. Because I think you even, like, touch on that maybe at some point briefly in your book. But about the idea of like calling and desire and even the way that church has separated those at times. And like, the, so what does it mean to be okay with like, there's just, I, I want to live in Hawaii. Yeah. You know, one without having any awareness of any evangelical culture growing up, I just didn't have an atmosphere of like God's will and God's plan being the singular tightrope you walk and anxiously try to stay on or else, you know, sure. someone's mad at you. I never had that in me, first of all. So that's a little background. And, you know, I think when you talk, when people talk about like post-evangelical folks and people and growing, to me, I'm like the beginning of that journey is somebody 10 to 15 years ago reading NT, right? And being like, wow, this is way bigger than I thought. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Like I had that moment when you have it, it's profound and it's amazing. It's beautiful. When you get a glimpse of a larger story, it's powerful. But within that story is this idea of, okay, there's this overarching story. Where is the story heading? Healing, reconciliation, justice, unity, oneness, et cetera. And I've just had this vision since then, I think built within the structure of that story is, this is all moving into this end, into this talos, into this point. And in this space we're in now, I think we have a lot more freedom than we realize to choose how we want to be a part of that. You know, it's like Rumi says, there's a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Hmm. And he may be talking about worship, but that's also true for creativity and culture making and justice and being a guide and a pastor and, or, and, or any in a business, whatever we are. And I've just always felt a great sense of freedom with that of like, you can do a thousand things right now that are all good. And are all somehow a part of that story and all contributing to that divine flow in this world that is moving towards that, that end goal, that oneness, et cetera. And I think calling, are you, we're, we're all being called forward into a life of meaning, into a life of depth, into a life of joy, into a life of creativity and justice, et cetera. But now once I sense that calling, like my thing is like, well, what do I want to do? Do, do I want to do this? And That's the question is, even with the whole, what do I want? I also would ask people, it depends on who's doing the wanting. 
you know, which eyes of your ego sense of self that still is being driven by the need for approval, the need for success or security. Well, that eye you probably shouldn't trust with all of your decisions. But when you when you collapse and fall into this broader, more spacious sense of I, this true self, our transcendent self, our self that has decentered our ego and allowed a larger flow to sort of be in the driver's seat. Well, that I, you can start to learn to trust more. Hmm. I know what I want is for people. I know what I want is for people to wake up. I know what I want is for people to experience wholeness in their relationship. So if I, if I know that's a driving thing, then how do I want to help be the alarm clock that helps wake people up to that? I don't know. This year is going to be different. And I wrote a book a while ago. And before that, it wasn't writing. It was pastoring a congregation in each season. There's, there's the calling and the desire are a lot more fluid and connected than we realize. Like You could never feel an individual calling from God and do beautiful and amazing things in this world just because of the creativity and imagination we have. Yeah. I think it, it, Parker Palmer says something to the effect of like your vocation is where your desires meet what the world needs. Something to to that mm. sort of effect of Yeah, I I from I haven't heard that attributed to Parker Palmer, but I have with Howard Thurman, like where the okay. deep needs yeah, yeah. of the world, your hunger, yeah. But that's a great like you never there's obviously a very individualistic, you know, western like what is my will and etc. this very narrow that's a very constricting thing from my perspective and it can cause a lot of anxiety as opposed to an open spacious field where we want specific answers and god gave us imagination we want to be told what to do but god has given us this capacity to have wisdom and that's scarier because it's a lot less certain there's a lot more responsibility and agency upon us which is funny how much we resist that but to me when you do embrace the sacred responsibility of the power of our choices within all of our limits and with degrees of privilege in a society that's leveraged for some more so than others obviously but we all have the power of agency and to me when you embrace that it's so liberating because it's like I could do this or I could do that. Do I know with certainty this is what quote unquote God wants? No. And I just don't even think like that. I'm like, yeah. I'm not I'm not thinking, is this what God wants? Is this good for other for the world? Does it bring me joy? Is it taking weight off of me? Is it well then why would that be bad? Hmm. Like, why would that be bad? So yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so there's something in you that like compels you to to go back to Hawaii that it's like we want to be here. There's something about it. And you all decided to start this church called Imagine. Mm. And like what did you what was sort of burning in you of like there needs to be this kind of church here? I want to be a part of this kind of like what were some of the things that were true for you? First of all, I can tell that you were you were and are in a in the post-congregational sense now a great pastor and a great interview because you just took that rant. I just took right back to the the tra trajectory of the story. That was amazing. <laughs> yeah, you did that, but <laughs> so fluidly. So fluid. You you can't tell the secrets here now. <laughs> and I when I was in grad school at Fuller, I was planning to do a PhD. And I was studying black and womanist theology. That was my focus when I was there, that I really made a path for myself was my, who was going to be my advisor, Ralph Watkins, Dr. Ralph C. Watkins, who was the head of the black theology department there. And I'm there. I'm like, cool. This is my guy. I'm going to do a PhD. 
it's all, whatever. I'm, I'm locked in. The, the school approved, basically approved of it, which is a big deal when you get that. And right before my last semester or year started there, Doc Watkins emailed a group of us who he was connected with like, hey, I'm leaving the school. And I'm moving to Atlanta. I'm going to go to Columbia Theological Seminary. He's like, if I started a project with you, I can continue it. If I haven't started it, I can't. And I didn't start yet. I had one more year. So my future crumbled right before me, right? The disruptions often are the path as much as we avoid them. And within that space, there was this opening of a friend told me, I'm going to move back to Hawaii and I'm going to start a church. And I was, my, my wife and I were planning to move to do that. To just to move back here and he was like will you do it with me and i was like i'm not that guy you're like you're not that guy pal i was like i'm not that guy pal to start it i'll, I'll be with you though i'm not that person and eight to nine months later as we started meeting and praying and talking about the future he was like man my mom's sick and i have to go take care of her i i'm not i, I have to pull out from this and i basically said i feel like regardless of what you do with it this is mine to do and he said i know and i hmm. was like you tricked me <laughs> <laughs> and i told people it was like his dream was so compelling and i inhabited it to the to the point where it became my own and so and the and for hawaii and this is where calling and desire again like i was talking about yeah I knew plans for this neighborhood here at Kaka'ako. I live in the unofficial arts district just outside of downtown. I mean, I'm on the edge of downtown Honolulu. And it was just this community that to me reflected that thin slice of what is a growing part of our culture and world, and even increasing now this post-Christian, post-everything that people have talked about in seminaries for 20 years. And I said, new communities like this require a new pastoral imagination. And... Even that word imagine comes out of, you know, Brueggemann's prophetic imagination of yeah, yeah. you have imagination comes before implementation. That's this is Brueggemann's words. And, you know, the prophetic imagination is you imagine alternative futures and in doing so invite new possibilities in the present. And I said, imagine is standing at the edge and imagining new possibilities for the church. And that's what we're doing here. We want to grow up with the neighborhood as it evolves, this new space, et cetera. And I was, did I feel called to do that? Yes. Also, did it just make sense to me? And did I want to do it given how I've been shaped and equipped and trained in formal, yeah, in, in formal ways? Yeah. I just was like, this is what I want to do. This makes a lot of sense. And so we came back and met in our home for almost a year and a half, very intentionally, not rushing the process and creating a community and a culture and an environment and a way of life together before we did a public thing. And yeah, man, it's been a really special seven, eight, nine, almost 10 years here in Hawaii, back in this neighborhood. So yeah, it's it's been good. Yeah. Well, as you look back over the last seven or eight years, and especially like pre-COVID, what were some of like the distinctives of what Imagine looked like as like one of the things that I'm seeing happen in the post-evangelical space is that there's a bunch of folks that like when you think about the innovation curve that are the innovators, like you were on that end, you're creating and imagining a new thing. I think that we're in this like shifting period where we're starting to see more early adopters coming in. Mm, mm. And one of the things early adopters need that innovators don't is they need some pictures of like, what did that look like? That's not yeah. to copy it, but to like ignite their imagination. They need like some things to like kickstart it a little bit. So I'm kind of, I'm just curious, like what did, what were some of the things of like, what did practically kind of look like for you all? 
Yeah, no, that's a great point. That is what you need when you are like the early adopter, but in innovating in your own space, just having concrete examples, not to copy, but to take in, absorb, be inspired by, build from, you know, that's like the work of Andy Crouch is like any any artifact of culture creates a horizon of possibilities. And that's really important. Mm -hmm. So that specific thing actually opens up a horizon. So one thing can inspire you and open up a horizon for you to innovate. You're not copying them, but somehow that thing opened up anyways. So that's, that's, yes, you're yes, so yes. right. You're so right when it comes to that. And I came in, I'll tell you, even I feel like the first two years of Imagine, some of my greatest strengths were there. And then the later years is where a lot of my weaknesses come in. And I'm not as, I wasn't as naturally gifted to do some of the delegating and the organizing and the scaling i'm like i get lost in that to be honest yep. but the early stages of what kind of a culture what kind of an environment and what kind of an atmosphere are we creating in this community we're not talking about scalability we're talking about the depth and nature of who we are and what this is, right? That's where some of my strengths are not only being able to see that, but actually create and know what I'm doing with people as I'm doing that. And I knew coming in, one, I'm not going to spend my life fighting religious people to move forward a little bit. That wasn't for me. I wasn't going to do that. I'm not going to spend my Monday mornings responding to antagonistic emails because people are mad that I'm, I don't care. Like, those people need to be, people who are going to be there, they need to be cared for and pastored as well. And I value the people who do that. But if the things I'm saying are going to create that much of an issue for you, imagine it's not the place for you probably. Sure, there's and I was okay, that, yeah. And I was okay with that. You know, I'm like, imagine isn't for everybody, you know, at that time. It's for everybody, but it's not for everybody in the sense of how they're going to receive it and whether they need it right now. And I came in knowing that and i also knew we're not spending our energy fighting or being mad at the old thing so when people are more familiar with this idea of transcending and including in our own personal journeys of evolution yeah. that's also true when it comes to how we lead and in institutional relationships too where yes i have my critiques and if you ask me i'll tell you when there's times where it's appropriate to talk about them but the primary energy is not what we're against it's you know, Roar's Center for Action and Contemplation, one of their taglines is the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. That's what we're doing here. I'm taking, as an Enneagram 5 who wants to stay in my head and just critique people all day, I'm taking the incarnational risk of relational vulnerability, emotional closeness that I want to avoid naturally. We're just going to create something that actually opens up new horizons for people. So I came in with that and also... In our home, it was, we're meeting Sunday nights together. We took communion virtually every single night since we started. Because for me, the table is the meta is a metaphor for everything. Everyone's, everyone's welcome. Infinite love is pouring itself out to everybody equally at every space in this universe, regardless of religious tradition or anything else. Everyone can begin. Everyone can be welcomed and embraced. And I think for us the one word that people would use to describe imagine is the word real. Hmm. And I'm very thankful for that. I'm proud of that, you know, because I knew early on, like I remember I heard Tim Keel talking about this a long time ago, you know, who I just think is a really brilliant guy. You know, I've been I read his stuff like over 10 years ago. And he talked about sometimes the role of the leader is like draining anxiety from a group. 
And I could feel defining moments in the early stages of Imagine of what does it mean to welcome people as they are? What does it mean to be a truly welcoming community? And it was, I'm preaching and a kid defiantly challenges me. You know, I don't know if I can trust your Jesus. And he wasn't being like antagonistic. He was being honest. I mean, it was antagonistic, but he was just being real. And he didn't, he wasn't just always doing that. And that was a moment where, you know, you can imagine in a group dynamic of 15 to 20 people who aren't used to that, they might be anxious. They might be, this is the moment the pastor dominates or corrects. And when this kid said that in the group, I said, hey, I just want everybody to know that you should quite you should question the things I say. You should wonder whether, and matter of fact, you should question anybody who ever gets up to stand up anywhere and claims to know anything about God or reality or truth. That's an like basic, that's an audacious thing for anybody to do. It's hilarious. I do it. And it was like anxieties filled the room, drain it out. Let me affirm your courage. Let me affirm what you're saying. Actually, let me let me tell people this is a good thing. Okay, now we're all okay. Or another story and imagine when we talk about a welcoming community was we would, you know, our rhythms were Sunday nights, worship, every other Wednesday night, family dinners. That was almost it. And we did some storytelling nights too. It was like AA basically. And on these dinners, you know, there's 15 to 25-ish people in our house. And, you know, we always had drinks in our house. People drinking wine, drinking beer, whatever. And this young kid who I love, who was actually from Pasadena, who had moved out there and we met, he wasn't a church going kid. We met at a coffee shop and he started coming around. And when he, right when we had dinner and we're all going to pray and I'm going to give a little speech about being present and the mystery of life is all now, et cetera. And when I did that, he took out a 40 ounce of Colt 45 and just put it on the table in front of him. And one, I don't think that was his first 40 of the night. And two, I grew up drinking 40. So for me, I'm like, that's not a big deal. You know, like, like that's just normal. And when he did that, even though other people were drinking, like it was kind of a thing, you know, you can feel the energy of it. Like, why, what is he doing? And when he did that, I was like, all right, after I gave my speech, I said, okay, Callie, cause that's his name. So shout out to my guy, Callie. He actually moved yesterday back to the mainland. I'm like, Callie, you're, you're going to pray for dinner tonight. And he was like, in front of everybody, put him on the spot. He was like, no, nah, dog, I'm good. Uh-uh, uh-uh. I was like, Callie, we're not going to eat until you pray. Because, you know, we had that rapport. <laughs> we, you know, I, I trusted the rapport. Yeah, yeah. And he was like, he was like, all right. And he prays, and it's really funny and authentic, and it was great. And then afterwards, I went up to him, and I was like, hey. I was like, I know you were testing people. And he's like, you know what? He's like, I was. He's like, I know you welcome me. He's like, but I don't know these people. He's like, you told me I can come as I am. He's like, if I was home alone on a Wednesday night, I'll be drinking this 40 answer. So if I can be that here, you told me that I can, if I can be that there, I can trust that I can be that here. And, I, and, and we just made a joke about it. But I knew in that moment, I'm like, these are the defining moments where a sense of anxieties increase. Are we going to perpetuate and reinforce other cultures of, you know, behavior modification or whatever it is, or can we accept the uncomfortability? Me normalize it, drain the anxiety. Hey, everything like Roar would say in his early book, everything belongs here. Everybody can be like, even early on when I would strategically cuss in front of certain people just to be like, Hey, I don't care. That's not the point. Hmm. The tight and rigidity around stupid things that don't yeah. matter. It's like, I'd rather have you cussing all the time and being honest than not cussing or doing the proper things and hiding the truth of your life. So 
There's all these intentional ways to create the kinds of spaces we want because what we create the first two years determines what we can grow at year seven. And I could see that when I was when I was doing it. Huh. Yeah. I mean, some of what I'm hearing you say is even like it feels like who you were and how you were showing up helped create a lot of like who the church became, especially in those oh, early totally. days. And so it feels like even to like talk about your book that you've got coming out, The Making of a Mystic, it seems like some of the work that was being done in you was already then being lived out in the way that you were leading. Like I can't, I can picture a lot of men and women who would, who would be starting a church that that moment that you described that creates anxiousness in the room that would want to sort of set a sort of like to show like that they're right because they've got a bit of maybe insecurity in that moment or they've got some sort of that it their ego project is being worked out in that mm -hmm. room and so so it seems like some of that work is already being done is that is that fair yeah no i think it's a good read and i think my journey towards being a lead pastor or pastoring like i did it reversed or i was like i grew up backwards compared to my peers which for me i actually grew up i think forwards you know and other people grew differently where i didn't spend my 20s you know i'm gonna be a pastor i'm gonna be a youth pastor i'm gonna build this then i'm gonna start preaching and there's this whole ladder and system i have to navigate and climb and i'm not saying that's all bad there's a process but my first half of life, building a container, building a name for myself, ego project was not tied to ministry. It was tied to me playing basketball, doing music and being that type of person growing up. So from 18, yeah, I say in the book from 18 to 28, when I started Imagine, I called it like 10 years of silence for me because I really didn't do anything publicly. You know, I was like doing small things, you know, like serving in this soup kitchen. I used to work like, this is all volunteering, by the way, like a halfway house for boys or, you know, this like an ice safe house for kids whose parents have been caught been caught by ice. And they have like secret houses all over, you know, where you, you, you can just be present with the kids. And I was doing small things like that and, you know, have a life group at church, like a community group. But I wasn't building anything You know, I wasn't putting myself out there publicly. No. I was just in school and reading all the time and growing and spending a lot of time in silence. And so by the time I got to 28, my friends do all this ministry stuff. And at 35 are like, I'm exhausted. I'm burnt out. I'm this. Do, do I want this? Do I even like this? Is this a church I'm proud of? How do I change it? Now they won't change with me. Now I'm frustrated. Like I didn't have that story. Mine was from 18 to 28. It was all my own slow work and silence and transformation, the invisible work of, of, of real, of real transformation. And then I started. So I had a, di a healthy distance from my ego. The ego had been decentered from the driver's seat of my life. We all still have an ego, but my I didn't have that crazy religious ambition where like I'm building a name through ministry in the way if, if you started off like that. So I had this self-awareness to be like, oh, when this kid said this, it triggered something in me. It triggered an offense, but actually that's just my insecure ego that was offended. I have enough space to make a creative decision because I'm aware of what's happening is affecting the group. Like I had the ability to do that to a pretty good degree when I started. So I could make a lot of intentional decisions, whereas other people may just be kind of going off of autopilot or expectations yeah. or what they think a pastor's supposed to do. And there would be defining moments where I would feel this like internal critic of, oh, this is what a pastor's supposed to do right here. 
or this is how a pastor should respond. And I would just be like, but I don't, that's not how I would do that. I wouldn't say that here. I, I, no, that doesn't feel right to me. It doesn't feel good. And I'm like, I get that. And I have to trust this other path of, you know, this is where the pastor, like, I remember hearing someone early on and someone said something that's not theologically correct. And afterwards, you know, when people have their little criticisms, this person, a Bible college person was like, he should have corrected them when they offered probably some weird way of thinking. I'm like, so you're telling me a person who probably doesn't go to church, who's sitting in a living room, yes, who's saying something that's not quote unquote orthodox, but because they're figuring things out like we all are, I'm supposed to just correct them and say, hey, by the way, this is not orthodox theology. This brand new person to the church who's wondering if they can be saved should say, it's like, that's not the point. Embrace mm. is the point. Embrace is like, Miroslav Volk says, embrace is theology. You know, I'm not going to correct them in a metaphysical. In, the embrace is the message. The medium is the message here in the community is that, you know? So you just, I had to trust some of those things because I didn't have the guys to tell me that in the moment, but I just intuited and where I was at, I was like, that's not what I would do. That's not welcoming. You know, you want to yeah, create yeah. a, come on. Yeah. So if there's a group of pastors who are sitting around your living room and fly out to Hawaii to hang out and we're sitting around and they're the 35 year old pastors who are feeling burnt out, they've kind of like built their things around ministry and they're intrigued by the idea of like, what does a more contemplative journey look like? There has been this thing that has been that I've realized I've centered in a way that's got to get disrupted. Like, what would you start talking do they need to like i know you tell about the story of taking mushrooms opening you up <laughs> and having this mystical experience or are you all doing mushrooms in the living room together like what is what is that yeah well one the mushrooms thing is funny because like the book and you know for people listening my book's called the making of a mystic and the subtitle is my journey with mushrooms my life as a pastor and why it's okay for everyone to relax and which well done on getting that in there. I should, uh, uh, I'll put that in when we do the intro, I'll, I'll re-put <laughs> that in. That should have been in there earlier. No, no, no. Um, I appreciate that though. Like my book is not, and that part of the journey with psychedelics and psilocybin, it's not prescriptive in any way. It's just my journey. And I think it's yeah. funny and it's my own story and I love my story, you know? And there's, there's, you know, I, I do talk about that because that's my experience, but I'm not a psychedelic evangelist. And I think some people are surprised to think the book would be a lot more trippy than it is. Of like, oh, he's gonna use the pastor takes mushrooms. It's like, since I had this spontaneous awakening moment with God at 18 while I was on mushrooms, I never did psychedelics again. You know, so it's been almost 20 years. So I'm not that guy. But with the pastors in that sort of mid 30s, I, I feel what you're saying kind of space. I would say authenticity will cost you a lot and whatever it costs you and you have to let go of was just getting in the way of you being free in the first place because that to me is a defining moment because when you find yourself i've built something i'm on this way it's like burning out it's also I feel myself growing and evolving. Can the church come with me? Can I try to challenge them to yep. do it? Do I just leave like that whole, those are all connected. The, the making a radical decision towards integrity and authenticity and in who you are, whatever it costs you 
in the end will be weight that is taken off of you in a personal sense towards your life in Christ. And I really believe that. The only things we ever let go of are things that were getting in the way of the first place. Because I would tell them a contemplative journey, which is a more honest journey, which is a which is a, a journey towards allowing yourself to see yourself and your life with clarity. You will see things that you don't want to see. That's why Thomas Keating, you know, the father of centering prayer says, it's not verbatim, but transformation is a series of necessary humiliations to the ego. That's really good. Because if the ego isn't humiliated and exposed, most people are just never really going to pursue that depth of change. That's why Rohr says great love and great suffering are what changes. Suffering forces you to confront the spaces you unconsciously spend most of your energy trying to avoid. That's why I tell people being a mystic is not romantic. People think it is because you're like, you get the poetry of, you know, the Mertens, the beauty of Tiknyat Han, the amazing words of Rumi, the Mirabai stars, right? All these profound people. I'm like, but mystic, being a mystic is not romantic because mystics are people who voluntarily go to the places that most people avoid. Mystics are people who voluntarily die, right? A mystic can, will confront the things within, confront ego balances within themselves and surrender them. No matter what the cost is, if you're going to lose a job, if you can't be in that relationship anymore, you can't be part of the institution, a mystic will voluntarily surrender those boundaries when most people will only do it when life stops working for them and they have to, to survive. You know, that's a big difference. And so those pastors, I would say, Let's get really honest about where you're at. Let's get really honest about what you want with that. And let's suspend all of the practical fear of this will cost my job. This will cost this, this money. And that's all real. I have kids too. My decisions I'm making are very real. But nothing is worth you betraying the sacredness of your own integrity and alignment with God. So the mystical journey will, I think, lead people to that level of clarity and honesty. I'm like, it'll be really hard and scary. But that's something you learn early on is if you embrace something being hard now, it's usually better and easier later. If you want it to be easier right now, it's going to get really hard later on when you're forced into some tough situations. So for me, it's just the journey of, of honesty. You know, that's a yeah. simple way of saying it. It just is. I'm honest. And now out of that honesty, I'm going to make decisions and I'm not going to calculate the outcomes. I'm just going to do it and let it happen. I think if I remember right, you quote Merton, I'm probably butchering this, I'm remembering, you quote Merton saying something like, liberation isn't setting the slaves free, it's showing people how they're already enslaved. Yeah, he has a quote, he's talking about like the prophet in there, like the prophet comes to say that essentially. But yeah, okay. he's like the prophet, this is not verbatim, but the prophet isn't the one like telling people, uh, telling slaves to be free, but rather by telling those who think they're free, they're actually enslaved. You know, and for 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 over clarity for people listening, that sense of freedom Merton's referring to is a more existential, personal, and spiritual. It's yeah. not an economic, social, and political. That's that's a different conversation wholeheartedly, and those are important distinctions to make. But yeah, the freedom in that personal sense is, oh, you don't like. No one can tell you when you're 29, hey, you're being driven so highly by the ambitions of your ego and it's really unhealthy because you're a Christian and you're spiritual, you know, and you don't, you're doing what you're doing for God. And, but you have to come to that realization, that moment of clarity on your own. So that's a tough thing is telling slaves to be free and telling those who think they're free is, but even if you say it to people in the wrong season, it doesn't mean anything. 
Yeah. But in the yeah. right season, but in the right season, when they're open, it means everything. That's why for me, those are those were guiding things for me, even pastorally, of like the idea of, you know, those with eyes, those who have eyes to see, let them see. Or now even there's a Zen saying now, you know, I probably wasn't aware of it at the time, but there's a Zen saying, you know, when the student's ready, the teacher appears. And you don't the energy goes to the people who are open and ready. I don't try to there's if I don't try to force people to wake up. I don't try to force people to grow. And it's such a waste of time because as the guide, it leaves you frustrated and it just grinds against the relationship you have with a person as opposed to that's a humbling thing about pastoring is you essentially say to people, I'm willing to go as deep into your life as you allow me on your mm -hmm. terms and how you do it. That's a humbling thing, you know, and it's different with everybody. And wherever I, I've always just been comfortable Wherever people are, I can be present to you and call you forward a step or two and give you a vision of a future. And if you choose to go, I will go with you. And if you don't, I'm also, I'm not going to lose sleep over that because, you know, as the pastor and leader, that's where so much over-identification with our role affects us negatively is we unconsciously think this person starts to grow and wake up. I'm doing good. This person went back to self-destructive patterns. That's reflective on me as a pastor. And that makes me feel, no, it's not. That's their thing, dude. They're people. You know, so I'm like, I am comfortable being a guide, inviting people forward and even committing to go with them. And if they say no, I'm like, that's, it's not that I don't care, but like, okay, I, that's fine. And so that's something that allows you to be free while you're leading others towards freedom is, I, that's a question I have for, I would have for leaders all the time. Why is it so hard to just let other people? Hmm. You're a guide. You're a, you you announce and you invite. That, that's all you do. And then after that, they just people are on their own journey. And I'm just always been comfortable with that. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's a couple of things in your book that I wanted to to ask you specifically about that I found super fascinating. One was I love the you talk about these cycles where you like have an experience and then you go mm. back to life and life is the same and you're constantly like trying to recreate that environment or that experience and you say like you know you you go to burning man and then like, <laughs> you need to go to burning man again or you go to another christian conference or another deliverance night or you need to have like another worship experience because it like opened you up in this way that it didn't before and it it Reminded me of, I recently read, I don't know if you've read, it's an older book, Paula, Paula Darcy's book, Gift of the Red Bird. Mm -mm. And she super fascinating. She talks about this experience she had on a vision quest. She goes off on this vision quest and three days not eating and out in the wilderness on her own. And she ends up saying out of it that she, like it was this transformative, significant experience for her. And she says, I kept trying to figure out I can't keep going on vision quest. How do I take that experience and how do I integrate what happened to me there into mm. the life that I'm living over here? Mm. Uh, so I'm curious, like in yes. that idea of that cycle of experience, like how do you take like that, that, that mystical experience where you have that encounter with God that happens in all kinds of different ways. And how does that then become a part of like, of daily life, wife, kids, week in, week out sort mm. of stuff. 
Yeah, I love that you're narrowing in on that because to me, that's such a crucial conversation for people who are really on a conscious spiritual journey and wanting to grow. And yeah, I tell a story in the book where I'm like, there's a story about a kid who said that while he was on LSD, he discovered the meaning of life. And so which, you know, people have those types of things all the time. And so the next morning he woke up and shared this like exciting and groundbreaking revelation with his friends. And so naturally they're all eager and they're all stoked and they ask him like well what is the meaning of life and the kid thought for a second and said i forgot (laughs) (laughs) which it's funny but like that type of stuff happens all the time to people who are like tripping and doing different things and what i love is the extremes of this story is like the discovery of the meaning of life right this powerful revelatory mind-blowing thing followed by the forgetting of what it was I'm like, but packed into this little story, this exchange between friends is a powerful message about the nature of the spiritual quest. And it's because the, the story shows us how a spiritual experience doesn't always translate into a spiritual life. Like we've gotten a glimpse, but we can't seem to move closer to the goal. Yeah, right? We've seen something true that's been revealed, but we don't know how to translate that revealing into a lived reality. And so I'd say we've traveled to the top of the mountain and and reached the peak. Like we talk about peak experiences, the peak that enabled us to see, but the peak was never meant to be the, the place that we were supposed to stay, you know? And our natural thing is, what do we do when we have a peak experience when, you know, Paula DRC goes on a vision quest is to go back and recreate the circumstances that led us to experience that. Go back, pay another $500 for a Christian conference. You know, go back to Burning Man with, but, but with the same drugs, you know, go, it could, there could be explicitly spiritual versions that to me, they function, those things function very si- similarly for us. And they can function very similarly in a psychological way for us. And, but here's what I would say is the, and I say this in the book, the peak needs to become a path. The vision needs to be transformed into values and the spiritual high needs to be transformed into the solid ground of who we are. And that's where when Paula Diarcy is talking about integrating that without contemplation, even our most powerful experiences of God will not turn into a peaceful life in God. So that is like, this is why when Ken Wilber talks about meditation and integrating these experiences into our lives, in a sense, I don't know if he says that direct, I don't think he says that directly, but he says in meditation, like our temporary states become permanent traits. That's why I take that in the book and say this temporary space you have like a peak experience has to become your permanent face, who you are. That's me saying the same thing, basically. And that is the role of meditation, contemplation, and sustained practice of silence is the vision I got. What did I experience in that high worship moment with God? These are real things. You know, these are real moments for us. And that, that vision quest Paula talked about, a worship experience where I'm raising my hands and I'm, I'm, I'm crying. And I feel like I can do this. Whatever this is, you're like, I can do it. Like, I feel empowered. I can do it. And you see with clarity what you need to do. The point is not to go back and recreate the the state of euphoria or power. The point is to take what you have seen and to integrate that into your very being and to start to live out of that. And silence and solitude and contemplation in this mysterious way creates this environment that alchemizes, I don't even know if that's a word, but creates the alchemy that does that mysterious movement from the peak into the path where 
when I'm in silence, whether it's in this room or up in the mountains or wherever I am, I am trusting. I am, ex to me, silence and solitude is a conscious experience of God and your true self and the fullness of presence all at once. Those are all synonymous for me. And so I don't need to go back to the euphoric state. I need to get quiet enough to start to subtly trust that which I saw up there. And it just starts to become me, you know, over and over. That's a unique thing. I, I heard Rorna talk. This is a talk he probably gave over 20 years ago. And I remember hearing it when I first found out who he was a long time ago. And he's like, there's just this thing where the more you go there, meaning your practice, silence, solitude, contemplation, the more you go there, the more you just become that person in your everyday life, you know, and even in my own story, in a, in a powerful sense, you know, I, I have this chapter in the book called mushrooms and missionaries and tell mushrooms were essentially missionaries pointing me beyond themselves towards the fullness of Christ. Like that's my story, but I did mushrooms 10 times from 16 to 18. And at 18, when I finally had this direct, immediate, radically transformative, conscious rewiring experience of God when I was 18, I never did mushrooms again, right? Because they were the signs pointing me beyond themselves to the source and to the reality of everything. So once this, let's say the ocean for God, once the signs and the directions pointed me to the ocean, to go back to the directions in science would be to be moving backwards. Yeah. The point yeah. for me now, once I experience the ocean, the point is for me to learn what it means to live in the ocean, to trust the ocean, and to wake up as the ocean for the rest of my life. That does not come from another peak experience. It comes from me consciously and intentionally every single day, believing enough, trusting in the ocean enough to consciously spend time in it and eventually just start to live in it like over and like all, all of the time and that takes practice and it takes time and no matter how powerful of an ego dissolving experience people have on a trip or in, in any conscious god moment the ego is always going to try to creep back into the center space and into the driver's seat of your life and silence and solitude each time is a slow practice of decentering your ego and the more you do that the more it just moves to the edges, the more you know that's not who you are, the more you disidentify with that part of you. And one massive experience gives you a vision of that, but the slow practices slowly starts to decenter that because you trust it a little more each time. So, yeah. That's so yeah. good. That's really good. Okay, well, I don't want to miss, before we get off here, talking about, we talked about kind of the birth of your church. And now, as we're recording this, and it'll... I'm not exactly sure when it'll get released. We'll be sometime around. Like you've got two more Sundays left of Imagine. Yeah. And Imagine is kind of closing out. It's it's heading into or it's in its final chapter. And so maybe by the time this is released, it'll have just closed or it'll just be closing. It'll be somewhere around there. Like what has that process been like for you? Because a lot of folks um, might fight really hard at this point to be like, something's got to continue on here. And I know we don't need to get into all the details of like how all of this stuff kind of came about, right? We can get to the weeds there, but I mean, you mean like you don't want me to retell the 55 minute monologue we did last time you and I talked and I told you the whole sure. story. <laughs> well, I mean, like that, I think that is interesting and helpful for some folks wrestling through things, but 
But I think what's interesting to me right now is even the way that you process that as a leader who had this thing that was unique and beautiful that was happening and you're having to like let go of that thing. And so mm. especially based on the context of what we just talked about, like how have you processed that? Mm. What kind like what did the process even look like to get to the point of deciding like, oh, we need to let this thing go. Mm. And it was beautiful for a season and it was just for that season. Mm. Yeah. No, those are great questions. You know, I, like I said before, a lot of the, when people think about apostolic leaders or really driven entrepreneurial stuff and the gifted, strong leaders and organizational delegating all that, I'm so bad at all that. I really am. I've had, I've had to grow into it and I'm grateful for those opportunities to grow those weaknesses, but I just get so lost in that compared to some people. But I would tell people the, the, it's like the, the, the parts of a lot of being a pastor, I'm terrible at, but being a human, I'm pretty good at hmm. and letting go is one of the most important things that you have to do to become fully human. It's, it's a little, you know, plug, slight plug for my, my second book coming out January 3rd is tentatively is called the joy of letting go how one thing has the power to change everything. And it is about how letting go is not one thing we do. Letting go is beneath, letting go is that which allows everything we do to be done well. So it's beneath the surface of everything in our life. And I say that because acceptance, letting go, forgiveness. One, if you want to be a pastor and maintain any joy, you have to get really good at acceptance, letting go and forgiveness. Because you will be consciously letting go of expectations, consciously forgiving people, even for subtle slights they don't even know. Like you have to know how to accept and let go to do this well and maintain joy. But with the church, that I'm really grateful my wife and I, who are co-founders of this and started this together, neither one of us had the unnecessary obligation and thought of if this doesn't go on beyond us, it somehow is devalued. We never had that. Or I don't want to say never, I don't know, but early on, but as time grew, like that wasn't our story. That gives you a lot of freedom. And I think embracing your own finitude, limitations, like that's my own cosmic, to, from the depths of your interior to the cosmic vision of life. I just don't take my role in this universe that seriously. Like the first thing I ever, I remember when someone asked me to write, it was like a blog for like the people who helped to start the church V3, like J.R. Woodward, damn, I love those guys. And they asked me to write something. And I think the first thing I ever wrote, this was probably eight years ago or something, was a blog. The title was No One in Kyrgyzstan Cares About Your Church. Because hmm. it was just like, if you zoom out, like I would, we would start Imagine. This is early on in Imagine. You know, when you're doing your little prayer circle or whatever with the team. And I'd be like, hey. We're just one church on one island that's a part of a chain of islands. That's just one state in a country with 50 states on a continent, on a globe. And I would keep zooming out. I'd be like, it's not that big a deal. And I was like, but now we zoom back in and somehow this is the most sacred work we could possibly be doing. It's both for me. And so I think. Just that sense of life and the fragility and the finitude and that existential place in the universe of like you're standing on the edge of nothingness all the time, but, but you still believe in the work that always gave me a lot of freedom and playfulness and lightheartedness in what I do, you know, cause I'm like, oh, come on, dude, like yeah. 
we're just there's 7 billion people. It's just historically, come on, it's not that big a deal. And imagine is that, you know, it's, it's beautiful and amazing. And I love it. And so many people have found so much life in it. But guess what? When Imagine ends, it's like the next week, it's like, where do, where do you want to go get coffee? Because people's lives are going to move on. And I don't have the illusion that their lives are going to break down without Imagine. <laughs> you know, I, I don't have that. But also, October, November, December, which was a season where we tried to reopen Imagine after not meeting for 18 months, essentially, which became the a season of coming to terms with, oh, this isn't a chapter of rebuilding. This is a chapter where this is, we have to allow this to, to die because it is a death and to end and we have to let go of it. No matter how much I'm willing to practice, practice acceptance, that was the hardest, one of the hardest seasons of my whole life. Because that's not a small thing to give a decade of your life to something at all. It's a lot, especially when you start something. And to see where it's at and to start to think like I started to shift the church towards this metaphor of hospice care. I'm like, Oh, this isn't a, this isn't a born again. This is a hospice care moment. And that really relieved me. It gave me a lot of clarity of how to relate to it towards the end. And I think the letting go part for me personally, like when I, when you said that hypothetical group of pastors at 35, like authenticity will cost you something. And you know what usually requires? There's another big risk with a lot of uncertainty and a lot of vulnerability, even though I'm 37, to step into. And for me to keep evolving and growing and trust the unfolding of life through me, oh, it's time to do that again. And I just sense that. Like, that's scary. I have two kids. They're starting school, you know, private school, spending money. And this is not a small thing. But I, for me, integrity and the desire to be real has always been my driving force in life, no matter where it leads me. And, oh, it, it like the lightheartedness of the church isn't everything. The church was the vehicle through which the life of God could unfold through me for 10 years. And I'm so grateful for that. But I, in no way do I think there isn't life beyond that for me personally. I'm going to keep doing what I do, just like you, like you're still you. You're still a guide. You're still creating space. We just can't help ourselves, you know? Yeah, yep. We are who we are. And that's the the structure of things can change, but the spirit within remains. The form changes, but the flow keeps going. And I just am so comfortable with that. Like, I'm still me. Nothing really changes. I'm just, it looks differently the next 10 years. And I guess those are some of the things, you know? But no matter how much I trust it, it's still painful, Many tears, many conversations with my wife, many like gut wrenching. Oh, this is where we're really at. And that's a, that's a big thing. And also you do the real work of letting go and surrendering and you don't just come out of it immediately, you know, death and darkness, winter lingers longer than we would like. And that's those liminal spaces that we avoid linger longer than we're comfortable with. And yet that is the very site where the next part of our life is born again, if we trust it long enough. So I'm just in another, I'm in another place of trusting that, to be honest, in my own life. So yeah, what is faith? When we're young, faith is about what you believe. When we're older, faith is about how much you're willing to risk. Because hmm. it's real life. It's flesh and blood. It's incarnational. Like belief systems, metaphysics. I have very little interest in that, to be honest, even though I'm a Christian. I'm like, who's choosing courage? Who's facing illusions? Who's letting go? Who has, who's being creative? That's to me what this is all about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it seems that you created a really beautiful community and did really 
beautiful work in Hawaii. And I'm excited for what this next season holds for you and to get to see like, what, what does the new form take? It'll be interesting to get to journey in that with you. So your book comes out May 31st making of a mystic. Yeah. Um, I would say it's up for pre-order, but it's probably already out by the time this comes out, but it is. It's up, for a, yeah. It's up for pre-order or it's up for like just released and it's up for pre-order so. or just order. It's not a pre-order. It's just an order. You can order it. it. So, help, yeah, help a guy uh, out. He just talked to, he's got kids and he's got to figure out how to fund them. Like we, we exactly. got to help a guy out here. What, where yeah, do the do folks you, find do you? Do you want my kids to get a good education? If so, therefore buy the book. Do you want them to? Okay, so yeah, May 31st, The Making of a Mystic. I already said the subtitle. Also, if you want to tap in, I have my own podcast, The Church Needs Therapy, where half of it I do interviews like this, and the other half are my own teachings, just things I'm, whatever I'm teaching about thinking. And... Yeah, I mean, I think the best place to follow along is I'm probably the most active on Instagram at Kevin Sweeney One. It's like day to day where things are happening, and yeah, it, the the title I think for some people think it's going to be like trippy and weird. He must be the pastor who still eats mushrooms. I'm like, the book's actually very practical and very pastoral and very because to me, I'm like, it's the mysticism of every day. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm zooming out to this great cosmic vision, and I'm zooming back into. It's a Tuesday afternoon and what does it mean to be a mystic? What does it mean to live in that kind of flow? So it's, you know, it's about the non-dual and it's about choosing your kids over building a platform. You know, yeah. it's about this great vision and surrendering in the, in the self beyond the ego. And it's also when you feel bad sometimes based on your product level, based on your productivity, just because your ego says you should be doing more. What does it mean to not achieve your way out of that and to just fall into those feelings and fall through them into the life of God? It's it's very every day. What does it mean to be a mystic? It means this afternoon, I'm not going to get more done. I'm actually going to sit in silence and process and bear witness to the way in which this person offended me because that's unsettled within me. And I need to sit with that and let it go in order to keep moving forward with joy. So to me, it's very practical and very simple, you know, and I think it's that's what it's just one reason why i love it i'm very proud of it it's good it's good yeah. well it'll be great for her to get out in the world thanks for thanks for making some time today it's good to get to see you and get to get to be with you super early hawaii time thanks for getting up yes and i told mike i really want to make it out to the event that he is responsible for leading curating and organizing um the the pastor's gathering in in denver in october so if you are for people who are find themselves in these spaces one i think i've told a friend that's what who i told him about that event i said this is one of the few places i would actually go to that's just from what i i mean honestly like and that's for me like uh, that's the tough about part about being a pastor it's like i'm a pastor i naturally just don't like a lot of people so it's a problem sure but so i'm i'm saying that like half jokingly but when i see you and, you know, Mike Hidalgo, who I haven't met yet, but just people involved in the energy and the, the nature of it and what's being said. I'm like, this is one of the few spaces I would actually feel good about and trusting to other people and also desire to go to myself. So I really, really mean that I'm hoping to make it out. Mm. Thanks, man. That means a ton. With yeah. that plug, yeah. if you want to, like, help sponsor a plane ticket, just like... <laughs> You know, Hawaii they know where to find at, at Kevin Sweeney. <laughs> yeah. One, yes, and just ask by Venmo. Just, just hit me up there. We'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs>
good. No, man, I'm so, I'm, 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 yeah, I'm so grateful for this time and look forward to this coming out and honestly, like, you know, connecting further, which I anticipate. Yeah, thanks, man. <laughs>